You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 18th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. And welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On today's programme, US President Joe Biden is in Israel. We'll hear about his meeting with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. The trip comes in the wake of a missile attack on a hospital in Gaza, which has prompted mass protests. We'll look at the global reaction to the loss of at least 500 Palestinian lives in the attack. Venezuela may be taking tentative steps back to stability as the government and the opposition reach an agreement on electoral guarantees. And then... This is the first major war fought in an era where there are ubiquitous smartphones. There's access to the internet, even in the war zones. We'll hear from retired U.S. Army General and former CIA Director David Petraeus. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Georgina Godwin. The US President Joe Biden is in Israel and has spoken to the Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. His visit comes in the aftermath of a strike on a hospital in Gaza blamed on Israel in which it's thought that over 500 people perished. Well, Chris Chermak is our Washington correspondent and joins me on the line now. Chris, Biden's mission was to cool the temperature in the Middle East. How has this attack, which Israel denies, changed the agenda? Yeah, it's a good question, Georgina. I mean, Joe Biden is in a very tough position, uh, it has to be said, as he arrives in Israel, particularly because of this attack. For one thing, uh, Joe Biden was going to meet not only with Israeli leader Bibi Netanyahu, but was going to travel to Jordan, meet the Egyptian, Jordanese and Palestinian leaders. That has been cancelled as a result of this hospital attack. So just right there, it shows in a way that his the, the nature of his mission has changed. And it's changed in a way that you could say is somewhat precarious because at the moment, therefore, Joe Biden is simply offering solidarity to the Israeli people. And that is, of course, important given what happened with the attack by Hamas initially. But that is kind of where it has remained, at least at the moment. Uh, He has taken the side, it should be said importantly, of Israel when it comes to this hospital attack. The Israeli Defense Forces specifically presented some evidence, what they claimed was evidence that this was an attack perpetrated by um, by the Palestinians or by Islamic Jihad, uh, by Palestinian Jihad. So one of the groups, uh, not Hamas, but another group of Palestinian militants, that it was a rocket that misfired that caused this hospital strike. And, and, uh, and, and I think we actually have a, have a clip of him saying that here. Let's just have a listen to exactly what he said. I was deeply saddened and outraged by the uh, explosion at the hospital in Gaza yesterday. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. Uh, Chris, what, what, uh, what evidence is there? How does Biden know who's responsible? What does Israel say? So there are two things, if you will. Um, Israel's defense forces have specifically presented some information, which they claim are transcripts 
of Hamas and Palestinian militant groups discussing this attack and saying that it was their their fault, as it were. Um, they also say they have additional evidence that they have presented to allies, including the U.S., and that this is something for those allies to release if they want to. Joe Biden sort of referred to that, as you heard heard there, that he was presented this kind of evidence. That's where this comes from. Now, of course, as, as you said, there are protests around the world. Palestinian groups are blaming Israel for this. And as I said, a summit in Jordan uh, has been canceled as a result. So we'll have to see where this goes. But that's that's the line, certainly, that Joe Biden has taken, that he trusts uh, th that Israel was not involved. If that were to change, that would certainly be a very difficult position for, for the United States. And what else has come out of the discussion between Biden and Netanyahu? Well, uh, so far, so they were they are they are going into meetings. Joe Biden will be attending a war cabinet, Israel's war cabinet. This is something that the U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken did as well. Um, and I think it's fair to say that there is some difference uh, between the public remarks, if you will, of Joe Biden and other U.S. officials and what they might be saying behind closed doors. A White House spokesman said there would be hard questions behind closed doors to the Israelis about what they intend to do in Gaza. Antony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, has been working on getting guarantees that civilians will not, that, you know, civilian casualties will be minimized in any strikes and, and potential invasion of Gaza, that safe zones will be established in Gaza. He has not been able to get any of this very specifically. So in that sense, there's still this question, if you will, whether the U.S. has any direct influence and, and can restrain any of Israel's actions outwardly when it comes to Joe Biden, his his comments just before um, meeting uh, with with Bibi Netanyahu, they don't speak of restraint. They don't speak of de-escalation in this conflict. Those are the kind of words that the U.S. has specifically even told its diplomats to avoid. At this point, they fully support what Israel is doing. They say Israel has a right of self-defense, and they have not taken the line of Arab nations, for example, who say that what Israel is doing goes beyond that right of self-defense. This is not something the U.S. has said. They're willing to provide arms to Israel at this point, and it will be, you know, it obviously bears watching as this crisis continues and uh, the number, the death toll of Palestinians continues to rise, whether any of that changes from the US side. And Chris, just very briefly, how much can the US actually do, given that there's no speaker currently in Congress? I mean, can aid for Israel be approved? Yeah, that is a good question, Georgina. We're still in the middle of this fight in Congress for a speaker. Republicans had a vote yesterday. They failed to elect a speaker. Jim Jordan was the candidate this time. He's a far-right candidate, um, for a member of the House Freedom Caucus. There will be another vote today on whether Jim Jordan can become speaker, but it's unlikely to uh, to be. To, he's unlikely to succeed. Until there is a speaker, there is nothing much that can happen when it comes to aid for Israel, Ukraine, anything else. No actions can be taken by the by by the House of Representatives. What might happen if this drags out a little bit further is there are some plans to to empower the interim speaker, Patrick McHenry, who currently basically has no powers except to call the House into session. There is some talk of empowering him to 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 bring laws to the floor, to sort of give him a, a small amount of powers, if you will, to get something like aid to Israel through Congress. That's something that's being discussed. Even some Democrats support the idea of giving McHenry those powers. And that would allow perhaps, uh, for example, a bill, the White House wants a bill 
of uh, or there's there's talk that the White House is pushing a bill of as much as one hundred billion dollars for. Israel, Ukraine, but also border security in the United States and potentially even Taiwan. That is something that might go through the House of Representatives and the Senate if we can agree on at least some kind of interim solution while Republicans continue to bicker about who should become the Speaker of the House. Chris, thank you very much indeed. That was Chris Chermak and you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Let's look now at the global fallout after the missile strike on the hospital in Gaza. Reem Momtaz is a consultant research fellow at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, specialising in EU and Middle East politics and security. She joins me from Paris. Reem, many thanks for coming on the show. There have been a number of protests. Can you give us some more detail, please? Thank you for having me. Uh, Like you said, this uh, explosion at uh, the hospital seems to have struck a very, very big chord with uh, people around the Arab world, around the Muslim world as well. We saw yesterday the first big uh, protest in the West Bank since the beginning uh, of this round of of, uh, conflict between uh, Israel and Hamas. We hadn't seen uh, such big protests in a while. Um, We're also seeing a lot of uh, anger, especially also unusually uh, official anger. We saw uh, statements, uh, very strongly worded statements from Saudi Arabia, from the UAE, uh, the UAE, a country that has normalized relations with Israel, but also uh, uh, quite a dramatic step taken by the king of Jordan, who not only called it a war crime, but also uh, canceled a summit he had planned with the US president uh, and uh, the uh, Palestinian authority president Mahmoud Abbas. How serious is it that that planned summit is now not going to go ahead? Well, we have to wait and see what today, uh, how uh, today unfolds and what the latest information about what exactly happened at the hospital uh, brings to light. Also, uh, it, it will depend on the diplomatic connections and conversations that can and will take place between the U.S. president and his various allies. As you know, the U.S. president is now in Israel. Will the attack make a difference to Israel's supporters if they believe that the IDF was responsible? At this stage, I don't think it will, because uh, you have to understand that, you know, the Israeli population uh, feels extremely vulnerable right now. Uh, Their sense of security has been uh, immensely uh, challenged by the Hamas attack. Uh, And so there is an imperative uh, to restore that sense of security on the part of Israel and the Israeli government. And we have seen a lot of unity and solidarity and mobilization at every level of the Israeli population uh, in favor of this uh, planned operation against Hamas in in Gaza, uh, setting aside even uh, a a year's worth of uh, political division in Israel that had uh, divided the country uh, as far as the ranks of the military reserves. Uh, And since the attack happened, They've actually set aside these issues and are all focused on what they feel is the protection of their country uh, and just delaying uh, dealing with these political divisions that they had. Mm. And I also mean Israel supporters beyond its borders. Are we likely to see uh, the EU, for instance, perhaps turning away from Israel if they feel that they were responsible for these senseless deaths in the hospital? 
Well, there's a credibility problem here. You can't have the EU or the US uh, on the one hand uh, denouncing uh, Russian um, uh, Russian violations of international law uh, and calling it to respect international law and not doing that when it comes to Israel. That is something that is going to be uh, very uh, problematic uh, for the EU and for the US in its attempts to keep at least parts of what is now referred to as the global south on side when it comes to the Ukraine war. So there's a balancing act that has been uh, at, at, at play since the beginning um, and since the October 7th uh, attack. Uh, that is why you saw the U.S. president, but also the French president, uh, the EU officials um, saying that Israel um, has a right to defend itself, but it has to do so in uh, in respect while respecting international law and while respecting uh, the laws of war. And finally, does this attack raise the possibility of a, of a much wider regional conflict? There is the potential of a widening of the, the fronts. Uh, we saw from the beginning uh, very unusual uh, positioning and signaling on the part of Iranian officials, in particular the Iranian foreign minister, who uh, came very quickly uh, to Lebanon, spent two, more than two days there, and explicitly said that if uh, Israel's attack against uh, Gaza uh, was uh, going to continue, if Israel was going to invade Gaza, then other fronts uh, would be opened. We also uh, saw uh, skirmishes on the Lebanese border. Um, these two elements we hadn't seen in the previous five uh, confrontations, armed confrontations between Hamas and Israel. So this is a new, these are new elements, new factors that we have to take into consideration. But at this stage, it's very hard to say with any kind of certainty whether uh, we are headed toward a multi-front war or whether it can be contained with the um, deterrence uh, uh, measures that have been taken by the US, by the UK and by the uh, Europeans writ large. Reem, thank you very much indeed. Reem Momtaz there. Now, we've just received some audio from inside Gaza. This is the testimony of Youssef Hamash, who's Norwegian Refugee Council's advocacy officer, with an update from Khan Yunus in southern Gaza. So he lived another day like hell. Today, early morning, I have to do my daily mission, finding bread and water. And when I was at the market, they they did four strike. Between each strike was one minute. So we were hundreds of people in the street. We we're panicking, running. Whenever we hear the rockets coming, we start to run. Just doesn't know where to go. We take a rest for one minute, then another one, then like two minutes, then another one, then another one. It was a hell in the street. Hundreds of people were running, but doesn't know where to go. I don't think we can handle the situation for longer. It's really chaotic. And also, honestly, we woke up, but I think our hearts are dead from what happened yesterday. This tragic situation, all what's going on around us, add to that all of this bombardment. Also, the ambulances, sirens didn't stop. Just going back and forth around us because the bombing was everywhere in Khan Yunus since last night until now. This need to finish. Yusuf Hamash in southern Gaza there. Thank you.
Now, here's Carlotta Rabello with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Georgina. China's economy grew more than expected in the third quarter, thanks to higher spending on industry and retail. GDP expanded 4.9% year-on-year, although the real estate sector remains weak. The world's second-largest economy has seen slow growth for several months now. The Philippines' president has suspended the implementation of his country's first sovereign wealth fund. The move comes just months after Ferdinand Marcos Jr. signed the plan into law, despite concerns about how it would be run and paid for. And the capital of Guinea-Bissau was plunged into darkness after its government failed to pay an electricity bill. Turkish provider Car Powership cut off supplies over an unpaid debt of 17 million US dollars, which the country's finance minister said would be paid within 15 days. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Georgina. Carlotta, thank you. You're with The Briefing. Yesterday, in a meeting facilitated by Norway, which took place in Barbados, Venezuela's government met with the country's opposition for the first time in 11 months. They agreed to electoral guarantees for the 2024 presidential elections, paving the way for possible US sanctions relief. Venezuela's president, Nicolas Maduro, has been in office since 2013 and is expected to run for re-election. The US imposed sanctions on Venezuela to punish Maduro's government following the 2018 election that Washington considered a sham. While Andrew Thompson is a Latin America specialist and a contributor to Latin News, who provides news, research and consultancy on the region. He joins me now. Andrew, what electoral guarantees have actually been agreed? Well, as far as we can tell, there are guarantees that there will be international observers from the European Union and various other organisations, which is uh, quite significant. Um, And there will also be a series of other, they're rather loosely worded commitments, for example, to allow uh, Venezuelan uh, overseas, about 7 million people have fled the country, to get onto the electoral register and to vote. Um, as well as providing um, access to the opposition um, to the National Electoral Council, a number of measures of that type, which uh, frankly depend on practical measures rather than just general statements. What does it mean for opposition candidates currently banned from running for office? Well, I think the, the biggest thing the talks didn't do or haven't done so far is give a commitment that candidates will not be banned. This is particularly significant for Maria Corina Machado, who is, uh, according to opinion polls, the strongest uh, opposition candidate and the most popular, probably the most popular politician in the country. Uh, the government of, Madu- of Nicolás Maduro has basically insisted that the bans, which are administrative bans uh, based on alleged uh, irregularities by the candidates, will um, will not necessarily be removed. So that's a bit of a sticking point. Uh, and some analysts are saying the failure to give a commitment that uh, Corina Machado and others could participate um, is reflected in the fact that there were no major relaxations of the US uh, economic embargo of Venezuela. Uh, there's talk, and there have actually been meetings and, and bilateral negotiations between Venezuela and the US government in Qatar. Um, so there is this talk that there will be further relaxations, but Washington has not yet committed itself. So it looks as if both sides are saying we're moving 
towards some sort of agreement, but extremely cautiously, uh, and the position could still unwind. And what do the US sanctions currently cover? Um, essentially, uh, they are sanctions on all Venezuelan trade, um, and in particular sanctions on the uh, oil sector. Um, there has been a relaxation uh, in the last year, which is that Chevron, the only US oil company still active in Venezuela, has been allowed to resume um, joint, um, uh, joint projects with the Venezuelan state-owned oil company and to export some heavy crude to the United States. Um, it's quite a complex agreement, and it says that uh, Venezuela cannot be paid in cash. So, ex uh, sorry, Chevron's exports um, will go towards reduction of debt levels. And how crucial are oil revenues to Venezuela's economy? Um, they are about 98% of Venezuelan exports. Uh, Venezuela has had one of the world's most spectacular economic declines during the um, the Maduro years. Uh, the economy has shrunk by three quarters um, and seven million people have left the country into exile. So it is of truly um, dramatic proportions. And what's the reaction been like to this deal within the country and particularly from the opposition? Um, the reaction is extremely cautious. Um, the opposition is welcoming um, the moves that are being made, but expressing concern um, that the ban on individual candidates, in, in effect, the ban on candidates who are uh, most popular, um, the, is, has not and apparently will not yet be removed. Uh, we have to bear in mind that the opposition are organizing their own primary elections, which will be held next Sunday. Um, and whoever wins that, uh, the polls are saying it's uh, Maria Corina Machado, uh, will then have to, if you like, coordinate uh, the struggle for uh, a greater move towards democracy. Uh, and if she wins the primary and but isn't allowed to contest the election, what happens then? That's the $64,000 question which various people in the opposition are trying to resolve. Um, one option would be for the opposition to boycott the election, saying they are unfair um, because you're not letting um, free participation. Uh, another option would be uh, for the nomination, the primaries nomination, to go to the second or third most voted candidates uh, as some, you know, as people who would be able to barter, uh, broker some kind of a deal with, with the government. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. That's Andrew Thompson there. And you're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. Finally today, Ukraine has carried out a surprise attack against Russia using US-provided long-range missiles to strike nine of Moscow's helicopters in eastern Ukraine. What's more, the missiles were given to Kyiv in secret in a major ramp-up of America's support for Ukraine. Well, earlier this month, Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke with retired US Army General and former CIA Director David Petraeus on the sidelines of the Warsaw Security Conference. They spoke about General Petraeus' new book, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine and Kyiv's Counteroffensive. 
General Petraeus, we'll start by looking at Ukraine, because I know your book talks about the history of warfare from the dawn of time up until now. (laughs) Well, nearly the dawn of time then. Um, Are you seeing anything, I guess, in recent weeks and months in Ukraine that's given you any anxiety at all about being overtaken by events? Well, the evolution of the use of unmanned systems really gallops forward in Ukraine. We have a chapter in the book. Uh, Again, this is Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine with the great British historian Andrew Roberts. We have a chapter that is titled The Future of Warfare, which again hasn't been invalidated by, you know, the few months since we put it to bed and sent it to the publishers. Uh, The chapter on Ukraine, though, um, you know, at some point I can already envision a second edition because In that time, we have seen a continued evolution of Ukrainian design and employment of unmanned systems, not just in the air, uh, but also on the surface of the sea. Uh, You'll recall that they sent some unmanned surface vessels, explosives laden, right into uh, a Russian seaport. Uh, And then we've also seen them use very effectively various unmanned missiles and drones and so forth to hit the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, the airfield in Crimea, the naval base in Crimea, and so on. So uh, this particular aspect has continued to evolve, uh, but by and large the battlefield is still, as we describe it, this curious mix of World War I, trenches, deep minefields, all the rest of that, um, Cold War, the vintage of the tanks and the infantry fighting vehicles and so forth, is exactly what it was that we were using back in the late 1980s before the wall came down when I was a major in a brigade on the inner German border. Uh, and then increasingly modern systems, again, specifically uh, the drones, but also some sophisticated electronic warfare and air defense systems. And of course, the Patriot proving that it could shoot down a, a hypersonic Russian missile. And then this context in which this is being carried out this is perhaps the most revolutionary because this is the first major war fought in an era where there are ubiquitous uh, smartphones, there's access to the internet even in the war zones, and there are social media and, and websites and so forth onto which you can upload uh, images, video, statements, etc. Uh, And that's quite revolutionary. And then you have data aggregators and you have websites that are devoted to nothing but confirming literally every single tank that has been destroyed on the battlefield and so forth. So there's a degree of transparency to this war that I think really is unique. Last time we spoke, I think we talked quite a lot about the Ukrainian counteroffensive. If you think about where that's got to now or where that hasn't got to, Thinking back, do you think possibly it was oversold? I do understand that optimism is important uh, for national leadership at a time of war, but what's your sense of what impact its... I mean, failure seems like the wrong word, but it it, it hasn't been the decisive blow that I think a lot of people have anticipated. Is that likely to have an effect on Ukrainian morale, especially as winter approaches? Well, results on a battlefield always affect morale. And here... I think there are two points that I'd want to make. First is that there's a lot more going on in this counteroffensive than that on which we tend to focus, which is the efforts to breach 
the so-called Suravikin line, named for General Suravikin, by the way, who was fired by the Russians for his efforts, but did put in an incredible defense. And I don't think anyone appreciated the depth of the minefields, the formidable nature of this. Again, we had a lot of imagery overhead, and it's open source and, and uh, civilian imagery and so on. But nothing really portrayed the density of the mines themselves, the depth of these minefields. We're talking miles deep, not hundreds of meters, uh, as is Russian doctrine, in fact. So that tends to be the focus. But really, there's been enormous progress made in, in going after the assets in Crimea, in degrading the lines of communication from Russia into uh, southern Ukraine and then also through Crimea into southern Ukraine. You have the advent of the unconfirmed, but obviously Ukrainian uh, strikes inside Russia itself. Um, again, hitting the, the Black Sea Fleet headquarters, hitting the naval and air bases in Crimea, hitting a naval base actually in Russia proper. All of this will have an effect over the longer term because it degrades the ability of the Russians to support those on the front lines, but it won't be something as immediate uh, and as obvious as progress in the actual offensive. But the bottom line is that it has been very, very hard. I was just in uh, Kyiv uh, a number of weeks ago. I was in there three or four months before that. Um, there is a, an ad, it's a more sober attitude, frankly, this, this summer, this past summer, uh, than was the case some months back, uh, because it's been very, very hard. Uh, and what we need to do in the West is to everything we possibly can to enable the Ukrainians to sustain this counteroffensive as they say they will, which is this is not just a summer or a fall offensive. This is going to go on into the winter. And, you know, rain is not going to slow down. It will slow down tanks and track vehicles that might get mired in the countryside. But infantrymen are going to continue to press forward. And that's the pledge uh, that I, I heard personally from the Ukrainian National Security Advisor and, and the, the Commander-in-Chief, in fact, the, the uh, senior military individual. General David Petraeus there, speaking with Monocle's Andrew Muller. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing, which was produced by Lillian Fawcett and Carlotta Rabello. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. I'm Georgina Godwin. Goodbye and thanks for listening.